And that leads me to the way that I would like to begin the afternoon. I'd like to read something from the venerable Ajahn Sumedho. And I have a few reasons why I would like to do that. One, because it um, touches my funny bone. And it, there's nothing uh, more enlivening than having your funny bone touched, especially when you're a little after meals, where it often looks in the meditation hall, as we often joke at Spirit Rock, it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Just, <laughs> A lot of nodding. Uh, and so sometimes a little device that helps to arouse a little bit of energy uh, can be useful. So that's one reason. But second reason, uh, this teaching from Ajahn Sumedho speaks to the, you could say, the, the heart or the pith instructions of the Buddha which is, uh, you could say in two words, to let go, to let be. Learning how to, and it's simply the opposite of clinging or holding tightly. Holding tightly to things, to people, to situations. That, that understanding the heart of the teachings is that we have a lot of stress in our life just by itself. But what turns the stress of our life into, into mental suffering is our reactions to it. And our reaction is often one of clinging to the pleasure and pushing away the unpleasant. And that, that adds, that compounds the basic stress of life and turns it into suffering. And of course the third truth is that there is the capacity within each person to experience a cessation of that grasping, a cessation of the, of the cause of suffering, otherwise known as letting go or freedom. And then everything that we do in our practice, um, from noticing the house that ego built, to noticing the moods, noticing emotions, thoughts, images, everything, sounds, is the function of mindfulness itself is to let go because it doesn't cling. Mindfulness just knows. And it knows with caring and kindness. It doesn't try to hold on to anything, doesn't try to push anything away. It just sees things the way they are. So mindfulness itself is a practice of letting go. But sometimes it's useful to have the attitude of letting go, of non-clinging, of, of relaxing, of easing, of, of putting down the burden of holding on so tightly to our views, our identities, our bodies, our, our, um, and the things and the people and the situations of our lives. So here's... Ajahn Sumedho, giving his pithy teachings, his instructions on letting go. And then I'll offer, uh, because the end of this passage speaks about how to work with the, his general attitude of letting go as it re, in regards to working with the mental states that tend to bind us, uh, I think this might be useful before the next practice. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this, pra develop this 
practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, by the way, learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Madhyamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, and write books and become the world of renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every, tried, every time I tried to understand and figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm. Letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. The Hinayana is the pejorative for the Theravada tradition, which is the tradition of the elders. The Tara means elders. The, the southern, southeastern, southeast Asian Buddhism is called Theravada because it's based on the earliest teachings of the Buddha. But uh, pejoratively, by some of the other traditions, it's called Hinayana, which means lesser vehicle. So, we, so, so you see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. So we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. Let go. It doesn't stop there, though. The important thing in meditation practice is to be constant and resolute in the practice, determined to be awakened. This is not to be conceited or foolish but resolute even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of the Buddha Dharma Sangha we talked about earlier today, being awake, opening to what is, and the support of the Sangha, Buddha Dharma Sangha, and stay with your experience, stay with it, letting go of despair, letting go of anguish, letting go of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. See, we turn these things into personal views and identities. Sad, I become, I'm sad, instead of recognizing that sadness is sad when sad arises. So letting go of doubt of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so that it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. So maybe it'll pop up when you need it, okay? You don't need to keep it going today practice you're doing is a practice of letting go. So now, first thing we can let go of is, is this poem and everything that has happened up to this point. And you might as well, as long as you're letting go of everything that's happened up to this point, you might as well let go of yesterday, the day before. Let go of your entire life that has happened before. The past has passed. It only exists as memory. So we let, it, we let it be past. And we let go, as long as we're doing that, we can let go of the future because it's 
unborn. It's just an idea happening right now. And we, while we're at it, we might as well let go of the present, too. It's just another idea. So then we can, we can call what we experience is now. or No, we can let go of now, too, because that's just another idea. No, maybe we can call it reality. Reality is just a word, too, so we can let that go, too. So then what's left? What's left? As Ajahn Chah would say, no me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is. Just what the Buddha called tata, suchness. Just the isness of things. How far do we have to travel to realize the the suchness of things, the completeness of things, the, just the isness. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. So it's really good news. If you point your cart north, if you keep pointing your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? So our practice says arrive right now. Remove the word now. <laughs> so now that we're oriented to what we can, we have to use language, so what we call reality or now or the present moment, uh, we're, we're a little bit more free of the burden of, of, um, of hopes and memories, etc. But they may visit. And as they come, we, we let them, I think letting be is actually a, a more useful word. We just let things be, and you'll see that they let themselves go. Everything arises and passes on its own. So all those 50,000, somebody said we have 65,000 thoughts every day, and 90% are repeats of the day before. <laughs> Now, do you think there's a little person saying, now think this thought, and then, or don't they just appear, and then they disappear? Mostly unbidden. Sometimes there's intentional thinking, but most of the thoughts are just thinking themselves, just unbidden. So we let them arise, let them be, and they liberate themselves. But the way that we can allow them to liberate themselves is to meet them with awareness. When we don't meet them with awareness, when we, they connect and we get lost in them, then we incarnate in our thoughts. We actually they, we cling to them and identify. We think that one we're thinking about is, is really me. So we can, and it's amazing and awesome and unexplainable how we can, I can literally get lost in an imagination that I'm somewhere else. I'm on the beach in Mexico. I'm having, and I can kind of construct this whole fantasy, and then all of a sudden the bell rings or something, oh, I'm not on the beach in Mexico. It's amazing that we can do that. And it's kind of while, while we're identified, caught up in the identity of our, with our thoughts, that uh, we're in what's called delusion. That's called delusion. We're, we're living in a virtual reality. So what we're doing is we're waking up to seeing that those thoughts for what they are, and we see then they, they just liberate themselves. You don't have to do anything. And if you see that things liberate themselves, then you, you don't have to help life along. You can let go. 
more. You can just let, as one teacher puts it, let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves. And notice, as he says, notice how everything vanishes and reappears time and again, time without end. As he continues, he says, only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a, um, a dog chasing its own tail. Um, but once you recognize this, let go of this tight fist of grasping and holding on, open spaces there, open and inviting, comfortable. This is our natural state, it's open. So in the meantime, uh, we will include the things that tend to be most sticky for us in our practice now. We'll include the, the body, breath, sound, but we'll also include what are called the five common hindrances, that the t- place where we tend to get most identified. So where do we get most identified? Wouldn't you say with our, with our desires? That's one thing. Very strongly identified with what I want to happen. So you'll notice that in the course of your practice that, um, that many, 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 many th- desires will come into your mind and many objects of desire. You know, it could be the, the desire to be pain-free, the desire to have a peaceful meditation, the desire for the, end of, for the bell to ring, some call the secret to happiness. Uh, the desire for wealth, fame, name, um, desire for uh, recognition, acceptance. So our mind can easily go into a, a state of, of desire for these things. And, and often we're caught up in this story and the picture of what it is that we want to happen. We don't very often pay attention to the state itself of wanting. And it's partly what feeds the, the identification with our desires is the, is the story that says, this is the secret to happiness for me. And the, the subtext is, I can't be happy now. I can't find relief now. So what we do in our practice is we, we notice that story. Oh, there's the story of the wanting mind. Story about the bell. But instead of just leaving it as the story, we expand to include that the feeling of the state of wanting, or waiting, or hoping, or expecting, all the different flavors of what I call suspended happiness, or lack. And we feel that with our mindful attention. Let it be, and notice how if you're not feeding the narrative, you're not so caught up in the story of it, not so caught up in the identity of the one who has to move from where I am to where I think I need to go, that's just a story, you know, because we really don't ever go anywhere. We're always here. If I've expanded beyond that to feel the experience of that, then I I can see that it liberates itself. It's a changing condition. It's a weather pattern. And I can know that. And then I don't need to do anything about that experience of wanting. It, it, It empties itself. So for a while it may get stronger, and it'll 
fade away eventually. Where are all those desires you had? Now. So funny how when you look for these things, you can't find them. So it tells you that they're dreamlike, almost every state of mind. But when we're identified with them, it seems like the absolute truth. I can't be happy until that bell rings, until, until he stops talking. So the same is true with aversion. So a big strong desire with what we want and like. Strong identification with what, what we think is impeding our happiness. What's getting in the way. What everybody is saying about me. What every, what, what, um, whatever pain I may be experiencing. Whatever, I'm, um, whatever is disagreeable. Whatever is, and it's usually something we experience some unpleasantness and then it becomes, our mind reacts to it, becomes disagreeable. And then our, the story says, unless that situation, that person responds to me right or that per- thing goes away or my neighbor stops making so much noise or my, my knee stops, stops hurting, uh, it's all, it's everything that's about the conditions. And as long as our sense of happiness depends on all these conditions being the way we want them, we're in a state, again, of suspended happiness. And we're getting more and more angry. And the way the Buddha talked about it is this aversion to things. It just gets fed by frustrated desires. And um, because we get so identified with the way we want things, the way we think things should be, the second reason, he says, is wounded pride. Our pride is constantly being shaken. Our view about ourselves is being threatened again and again. So that's why the story just keeps building and we get more and more frustrated in our lives with the way things are because we're really identified with how they should be. Any of you relate to that? Okay. So in our meditation, we see that story. See, oh, there's the mind spinning out how things should be different. How much I don't, how much, how pissed off I am at this person or that thing. So what we do, if we're able to, and sometimes it's not easy to accommodate at first, we expand beyond that, that narrative and feel what it's like to feel the rumblings, the burning, the, 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 um, the hotness, or even the coldness of being aversive, angry, irritated, fearful, frustrated, all the flavors. We feel it through our body. So we are all experts at the, at the storyline of what we're angry or what we want. We're not very practiced at feeling things. So we learn how to feel in our practice. So what does aversion feel like? What does anger feel like? And at first, you may not be able to handle it. So if you can't handle it, just find something in the immediate present that you can handle, like just even your foot touching the the chair or the floor or your hands touching or your lips touching, something that's neutral that you can accommodate. And just remember that there are things that are okay right right here. And then start experimenting a little bit at a time, taking in the, the burning of, of how angry you feel. If you connect with the felt experience of it and are not feeding the narrative, and it's easy to talk about, sometimes not so easy to do, but if you're not feeding the narrative, you're just feeling the, the state itself, it won't last that long. 
it will show itself to be like everything else. A changing condition, it will liberate itself. Nothing to do about it, nothing to undo, just meet it. And that's what we're doing. We're just meeting. All we're doing is learning how to meet, our, meet experience and see it for what it is. And when you see that these things are changing, that they're happening by themselves, they're liberating themselves, you can see that this is not me. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not, this can't, your identity can't be captured in a feeling of anger. It's just a changing condition. So you see that anger is angry. It's not I am angry. That's a little extra story that gets added on and then believed. That's a distortion of perception. And this is what we wake up to see through this self-illusion. We, doesn't mean you disappear, but you see a story about yourself is not yourself. There's, you, you get the full measure of being human, but it doesn't have to be a big, a big identity about it. So I don't want to go through each of the rest of them, but doubt is a big one. That a narrative of, of uh, uncertainty, of, of confusion, of um, um, I can't do this, everybody else can do it. Uh, insuff- you know, just some view that I'm not enough. It's a self-doubt or doubt about the teaching, doubt about the teacher, doubt about whatever it is. You'll see there's lots of stories like that. And and when they go unnoticed, they're very diminishing. You feel very much the person who can't get it, can't get it, who's not getting it. And it's either the world is conspiring to help you not get it, and that's where it mixes with blame or um, you can't get it and you, you want so much to get it then your mind goes into craving. But just the sense of, I'm not getting it. Everybody else is. I'm the most unenlightened person here and everybody else is getting. And how does that happen? It's just, where's the evidence for it right here? It's one of those common narratives, but it really takes the, takes the wind out of our sails, is the the mental state of doubt. So you want to pay attention to, see, doubt is doubt. There's this whole little story of, but then it also feels, it feels agitated and heavy and, um, and it can easily devolve into a kind of hopelessness. It's just another form of doubt. So doubt Hopelessness doesn't describe any. It doesn't point to anyone. It points to a mental state, a weather front. So we get to see that with meditative awareness. Our usual psychological view of ourselves—it's that's who we are. We deconstruct all that just moment to moment. See, oh, that's doubt, that's aversion, that's desire, and then we also notice the different states of dullness that sometimes come. It's called sloth and torpor, that just a habit of mind sometimes. Sometimes it's a function of being tired or this or that, but sometimes torpor is just a habit of mind, a mental state. We can, it can become very habitual and think, I'm, a, I'm really a dull person. That would be the identity view around being slothful. But what we do in practice is we 
come, move beyond the view about it, feel it. What does dullness feel like? We notice it. Oh, dullness feels like this. Heaviness. Sinking mind feels like this. We feel all these different qualities. Don't find any self in them. You just find the quality that's present and that they're changing and they're not self. Same with restlessness and worry and agitation. There's always a narrative of some sort. A lot of restlessness comes from regret from the past, trying to fix something that happened that's, that's gone, or trying to anticipate how things will turn out, associating our happiness with past and future, which don't exist in, in fact. And so the attempt to try to resolve things, uh, recreating the past and the future again and again, it just makes us more and more disembodied and restless. So we feel the effect of that in our body and the very restlessness, if you can accommodate it, it brings us back to, to a greater sense of peace. So we expand beyond the narrative and feel it. Oh, worry feels like this. Regret feels like this. Restlessness feels like this. Okay, ready for it? See, you could read the menu about this and it sounds interesting, but nothing like actually feeling it. Thanks for your comments earlier. That was really helpful. Rajan Sameda, one last time. The important thing in meditation practice is to be constant and resolute, determined to be awake. This is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and stay with it, letting go of despair, of anguish, of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it pops up on its own no matter where you are. So we let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and just feel things as they are. Feel the uprightness of the sitting posture. We let go of any strain or tension. Let ourselves feel like we're a block of ice that's been left out in the sun, melting into the earth, supported by the earth. Feeling that point of contact, letting the contact points melt. Touch of the hands, touch of the lips, touch of the eyes. Feeling the body's breath. No need to direct or control the breathing. Let it breathe itself.
Just let each breath be a reminder of your love of being present. Reminder to relax, to let go. And just stay with the flow of breathing as long as it lasts. And when sounds call your attention, be aware of hearing. When other sensations call your attention, let the breath recede and let your Let the sensations, the predominant sensations, be felt just as they are. Notice their changing nature. And as any one of these mental states I described becomes stronger than the breath, to let the breath recede and just notice, feel, desire, aversion, restlessness, worry, doubt, dullness. In any other state of mind or state of heart that becomes stronger than the breath, as you may feel happy or sad, agitated, calm, fearful, angry, grief-stricken, sorrowful, joyous, any of these become stronger than the breath. We They often come accompanied with a narrative, but we expand beyond the narrative to feel the states through our body. Knowing what it's like to feel anger, joy, sadness, and what happens to it when we notice it. Everything is changing. Let things come and go in their own time. In the meantime, settle back into this moment, this breath, or whatever it is that's here. No place to get to, nothing to undo no one to become. Just be as you are. Aware of what you're aware of.
are you aware right now? What are you aware of? And how are you relating to what you're aware of? With openness and interest? Or tension, resistance, contentiousness? Are you trying to make something happen? Are you letting it be? making space for it.
You might notice right now whether your experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Take in the basic fact of this without trying to alter it. Feel what's pleasant, feel what's unpleasant, feel what's neutral.
Again, if you find that you're feeling excessively reactive, straining, struggling, or excessively dull, feel free to mindfully, lovingly refresh yourself. Begin again. Shake it off. You can always begin again.
So I'd like to ask you the question, how is it going? And, and tell me what your mind does with that. See how just the basic experience of what's happening gets um, translated into a narrative about you. So what's the, anybody want to say what that, where the narrative is going? Kind of put a light on what you're thinking. Anybody? All good. It's all good. Restless. Restless. Oh, that's pretty simple, though. That's pretty direct. Anybody? What? Sleepy. Sleepy. Okay, these are much more simple and direct. This is not, doesn't sound like much of a narrative. Fuck this shit. I'm out of here. What was the first? Fuck this shit. Okay. (laughs) That's serious narrative. (laughs) Oh, that's painful. Sorry about that. So I dropped into the, to the sitting in the middle. I said, notice, and I think you probably were well aware of this, notice whether what you're experiencing now is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Anybody notice that? Was that? And it's... And the reason I dropped that in is because that is, you could say, uh, ground zero. That's the point. Because our life doesn't not have those three characteristics, those three valen- that, that valence accompanies every moment's experience, either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Now, when, it's, when an experience is pleasant and we don't notice it, it's usually followed by, what's it followed by? I like it. Followed by liking. And when liking goes unnoticed, it's usually followed by, um, I want more of it. And that whole little sequence creates a little internal charge. A little, and that charge is what's sometimes called bhava, becoming. So the, then the mind goes into searching how to perpetuate whatever that pleasurable thing is. And, and in, that, in that searching, often a, a little narrative that says, I am somebody who uh, in the past this experience came to me, and now I'm in the present trying to figure out how to keep it going. And so I've, I, enter, I enter into the narrative, the story of me, and I become identified with the pleasurable experience. It becomes all... My identity, my, the story about myself is all about this unpleasantness, or this, this pleasantness. Same with unpleasantness, and you're, believe me, you're not alone. Something unpleasant presenting itself, as it will. There's a little, often a little charge of, don't like this. And that charge of not liking is followed by desire to get away from it, or hardens into a kind of aversion. And then the pressure of that builds the bhava, the becoming somebody who's going to get away from that experience. And we're into our, into our identity as the person who's having a bad experience who needs to uh, get rid of it. And it all happens very quickly and very innocently. And when, you heart, when that happens over and over again, the unpleasant is met with not liking, with aversion, with becoming, uh, trying to get away from it, 
this becomes the addictive cycle of what we call Sakaya Ditti, the, the view of self as somebody, uh, the view of self that's tethered to or, or surrounding a, desi- a, a pleasurable or an unpleasant experience. So a lot of our identity is around what I want to happen or what I don't want. And so what our, our meditation does in terms of, one, we can just see how you know, I could, I often read a poem, a long poem, I don't, yeah, I have it with me, that, that exemplifies how it works with desire, how our whole identity can get built. And this, this poet really understands the way, uh, how his mind is just proliferating with the, seeing himself in this identity as the one who's going to achieve the, his desired uh, pleasure. And you could, there's many, many stories, I could, I don't, I'd have to dig through them, but many stories about, uh, about the way the mind proliferates, the way our identity view gets embellished by the person who's angry and, and, and needs to get, have the world be different or show up different or in order to be happy. So the angry version, the desiring version. Just an example of the desiring version. This is a poem by a a poet named George Bilger uh, called uh, Unwise Purchases. So you can, you can get the, the gist just from the title. They sit around the house not doing much of anything, the boxed set of the complete works of Verdi unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner. Her, near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto. She and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. This is what we call 
what's called papancha, the proliferation of the identity view around what we desire. And meanwhile, that idea, identity of ourselves, does not really exist. It's a story of somebody who doesn't really exist. It's the imaginary version of ourselves. And that's not to say that each of us does not exist. We're here. Living, unique individuality. But our mind spins in this virtual version a lot in reaction to these simple feeling tones. Amazing how the whole construction of our imaginary life, of our self-life, is in, re- in some little reaction to these feelings. And it is inevitable that our mind will do this. You can't stop it. But we can notice it. And we can count it, in fact. We can say, oh, there's, that. there's, the, there's the, the self-view around worry. There's the self-view around desire. Number 600 of today. And, and the more we see them, the less, um, the less bound up. Remember, letting go, letting be. It it liberates itself when you notice it. One story is often about reacting to something unpleasant. Uh, This woman, and I'll get the story mixed up, but this woman sends her her, um, husband to the store to buy some potatoes. And she says to him, just before he leaves, Make sure that they don't give you rotten potatoes. And so he, he reacts to this, the unpleasantness of the thought of a rotten tomato and starts spinning this whole story about how the shopkeeper is going to stick him with some lousy tomatoes. And before, by the time he gets to the shopkeeper, he's so livid that he says, you can keep your damn tomatoes, and he goes home. What happened? He entered into this identity of somebody who's being taken advantage of out of reaction. And so a whole identity view flew from... Now, there are many situations in our life, incredibly unpleasant, where we were caused harm, where there was harm caused, not necessarily intentionally. And the reaction to the unpleasantness, our mind went into a state of fright, to flight, to freeze, and, and the pressure of that aversive reaction, fearful reaction, it spawned or generated a whole identity view of I am not safe, the world is not safe, there's something wrong, and it often extends to there's something wrong with me. And this is a narrative that many, many of us carry around in some form because of maybe it could have even been mild, some perceived need that wasn't met, and the unpleasantness of having a need unmet, psychologically, emotionally, our body went into freeze, and pretty soon we're, we disconnected from that un, un, um, t- intolerable feeling of unpleasantness. And for a little person, it's often intolerable. And off we went into that, the virtual world of the imagined me, And sometimes whole cultures of people have reacted this way. And especially if you've been in a culture, a gender, a religion, or a race that has been marginalized in some way. It's like a collective 
a collective reaction of aversion, understandably, and a whole identity is formed. And we have to have deep, deep respect and mercy for the, for the pain that comes with that. And in, in our culture, any, anything other than being white is, has experienced that. And, you know, white people in their own way. But everybody, in some way, incarnates in reaction to uh, being uh, unseen or, or um, you know, just experiencing something unpleasant that couldn't be tolerated. But our practice wants us to meet that, not with more anger, more judgment of others or self-judgment, but with mercy, kindness, compassion. Because we can't help it. It's something that's part of our developmental process because we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to conditions, to situations, to people near and afar. And because of that, we are, being, we are blown by the, by the winds of circumstances. Even in your own life, you know what the Buddha described as the eight worldly winds. There's praise, there's blame. There's pleasure, there's pain, there's fame, there's shame, there's gain, there's loss. If, you're, if you don't have all eight of those, you're not one of us. But these winds blow through our life, pleasant, unpleasant. And if we recognize them as such, just like if you're able to accommodate more unpleasant in your life, you know, as you go forward, if you meet that with kindness, with caring, with awareness, it cuts the chain that would usually lead that into a whole identity, to a whole story, to a whole view. If you can accommodate the pleasure of a thought of the person down the street, feel the pleasure of that, it cuts the chain that would lead that to this kind of endless proliferation of, of a fantasy world about you, with you as the star of, this, of the show that just sends you into a, a state of suspended happiness. And then you often stay there, waiting for the, the right one, as though something or someone can make you happier than you are fundamentally. That's the trick of the mind that these, that these mental states uh, play out. So we try to just wake up to that. We try to notice the pleasant, unpleasant, the neutral. The neutral, we tend to not notice, so then we just get lost in our narrative, get lost in thought ends up being more interesting than the neutral. But it's interesting, if you do, if you can learn to feel and open to the neutral moments, then there's often, with that comes a feeling of greater balance, steadiness, peace, uh, openness, emptiness, freedom. So we deprive ourselves in our reaction to the neutral of spacing out, of going into delusion. We deprive ourselves of, a, of a, what could be considered a, a gateway to the highest freedom, which is the quality of equanimity. So I'm curious, before we do a little walking, please. I realize you're a white male, but um, a minority that, while meditating, might come up about um, the identity of fear around 
something scary or having been hurt. So something like that comes up. What it, it and we're supposed to notice it and then let go. No, let go means let it be. Let yourself feel the effect of that. So, so an example of somebody, let's say in this room, because it's a, there are there are it is a, there is a, a minimal amount of diversity in this room, but if a, uh, let's say a person of color walks in this room, and says, not that many people look like me, and they'll immediately ha- be aware of their of some kind of difference. This is very this will happen from time to time, or somebody else of some uh, different. Um, you know, some other kind of, of um, divert, you know, some other kind of uh, minority population would come in. It could be sexual orientation, whatever. It could be any a number of things. But that person all of a sudden f- feels like their identity as being different than other people in the world. Now, a person who's everybody looks like them, they wouldn't feel that. And that's part of the shroud of privileges they, w- they wouldn't have to feel so different. But many people feel different for one reason or another. It could even be because they, the height could be, could be socioeconomic, could be any number of things, class. It's whatever f- creates that feeling of identity. And for somebody to feel that, that's part of a, part of a, a view of self part of an identity, and we all have identities. And they have a certain function. They remind us of, of differences. We don't want to, we wouldn't want to pretend that isn't there. So you wouldn't want, if you felt that, if you felt your differentness in some way, you wouldn't want to try to let that go. You'd want to see how that feels. You'd, want, you'd not want to immediately project it out as I'm, you know, everybody here is is um, is looking at me, or everybody is? Uh, I'm I am unsafe. You wouldn't want to. You might notice the narrative. I don't feel safe, or I'm not happy here. But you wouldn't want to. Nece- I can't necessarily speak with authority on this, but you wouldn't want to assume that's the whole story. Is the projection of whatever your mind is telling you. But your mind will re will reinforce the sense of your of that identity. It will it just does in one form or another. So you want to notice that. And, and acknowledge how that feels. And if it's painful, you want to meet that with a lot of kindness. You wouldn't want to try to stamp it down. Nor do you want to feed the narrative about it. You want to feel it. And you want to, and you want to feel the... Anytime that we, we form an identity around anything, it's vulnerable. Even if I feel, form the identity of being special, or if I get too identified with being the teacher, it's vulnerable. Because you, any one of you can tell me, you're not the teacher. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Or they can look at me a certain way or act a certain way, and if I've gotten too identified with that view, and I'm, I've made my sense of well-being dependent on people reinforcing that view, I'm going to feel really raw and vulnerable. On the other hand, I know it's a view and it's an identity. I know that it's vulnerable to somebody saying you're not such a teacher. Then I'm going to I'm going to be kind to myself because I am functioning in that role, but I'm not going to I'm not going to have my primary sense of identity there. 
I'm going to recognize it as one of the identities that I have to work with. As each person, whatever your heritage is, you have to work with that identity that you were born into through no fault of yours. In fact, it's what makes you unique and individual. So you feel it, you honor it with all the loving kindness and mercy toward the vulnerability that comes with it. That's why I call it loving the house that ego built. Because we build a house of ego around everything. And any house of ego is a vulnerable house. Because somebody can knock it down. Somebody can tell you, no, you're not that. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it helps, but so let's say you get to that point, whatever that is, and, and realize that I think you made the comment that but that's not yourself. So what do you, do you just do you just mean that that's not all you are? Yeah, that's not all you, all are. you are. Yeah. A view of yourself. Even a cultural view of yourself is not the whole story. So we just expand that view of ourself, not to be limited to any view. I wanted to read something, if I can find it here. This was my favorite quote from the last week. Oh, here it is. Think not to settle down forever in any truth but to use it as a tent in which to pass a summer night. But build no house of it, or it will become your tomb. So anything that we get excessively identified with kills us. But a lot of times we've, we've gotten excessively identified through no fault of our own, just by virtue of being born into a situation where we were we were seen as different. And so first and foremost, we have to honor that. We have to honor all the different ways that we've taken birth in, a, in an identity. And then to, um, to, to be kind with that. Hopefully in somewhere in the course of our practice, we, we both include that and we see what's not limited to that. Did you notice any other hindrances come up during the practice? Any desire, any aversion, any restlessness or worry, any doubt? Were those things hard to see? I felt so restless and anxious. Restless, anxious. Right oh. in here, like for the, a good part of the second half. I just and, and how did you work with that? Uh-huh. You mean, I don't, I'm not sure, you mean give it space? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Or Yeah, and um, I don't know, I just sort of sat, I just tolerated it. it yeah, you tolerated it. Mm. Did you feel the, un, just feel the unpleasantness of it? Whole body, yeah. It was just like, yeah. Anybody else have a lot of un- restlessness during that last sitting? Mm-hmm. Anybody feel a lot of dullness? Yeah. Any of, just, of you just let yourself feel that? How about... Aversion. So, felt um, like torpor. Torpor. That then went to doubt, then went to, well, I need to do something to wake up. So, so I moved around. Well, that's skillful, but, but we, the, I like that you're pointing to that we often will have 
some kind of dullness, and then we'll react to it with aversion, and then we'll try, we'll want something else to happen, there'll be more desire, and then we'll get, we'll get agitated and restless, and then we'll get, start to have doubt, and we have what we call a multiple hindrance attack. And it, and it can be a real sense of identity of something's wrong. And it's hard to just tease it out as, oh, this is this and this is it. It becomes very much about me and mine. So we're, we're just seeing the difference between the simple reality of what's happening. There's restlessness or there's doubt or there's this sequence of things. And then the, the way that it gets um, brought into the... the the self-view. It becomes very personal. So any other comments before we do some walking? Please. Thank you for saying that. And, yeah. But I think you also speak to how hard it is for us to yeah. come to that place of loving the house that ego built. Uh, because we tend, I, I, I mean, it could be a whole talk in itself, but I think we tend to, to um, oppress ourselves by impossible ideals. Yeah. And we're fed them all, the, all the, every day. And we're, con- and we're constantly, and this leads to the part that we'll share after the walking period, but uh, we're measuring ourselves against an internalized sense of who I or you should be. And so our own internal um, identity, ideal, becomes our tormentor instead of our friend. And so, but... I'll, I say that partly because even that, those, that internal demand to be different, to be better, and that not cut yourself any slack, is an attempt. It still comes out of love for yourself to try to make you better. But it, it's a complete distortion in what actually works. But it, part of what our practice helps us do is see, how, see what, that, what those ideals are that we're, that we're measuring against. And so it's getting to know the comparing mind. So we'll, we'll talk more about that during the next phase. I'll share just a sneak preview with a poem. Uh, please. I just have a quick question. I, I was just thinking about the questionnaire here. Um, and I don't know if it's appropriate for today, so since some of us are here for CEUs and some not, but um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts you could share about when people come in and they're depressed. Let's say they're a client and they come in and they're depressed. How you would apply these techniques, mindfulness practice techniques, and when you might think about medication for someone. Right. Where you would draw that line. Where you draw the line with medication. or meditation. <laughs> Somebody comes in depressed. Uh, it's such a huge question and so individual. But the few things that came to mind as you were speaking, 
If somebody comes in depressed, they may declare to me that they're depressed. And if they do, I know that there's, it's a mixture of a chronic feeling of, of a, a variety of different symptoms. But I like to see the difference between whatever those symptoms are and the identity that I am depressed. And it's very easy for a therapist to immediately buy the story, I am depressed, and then see that person as depressed. So how you see them makes a difference. So I try to see the person for what they are, not necessarily the story that they're telling me. And I may see, because I know that even if a person's depressed, it's not a monolith, that it's intermittent, that there are moments of being depressed and there are moments of not being depressed. Of course, if there, if there is a preponderance of moments of being depressed, then, it, then the question of what would really help them. But even if, they're, even if they're saying that they're depressed, there's obviously something persistent going on, some inability to rise out of a, the certain, that view. But I do want to, in the course of my time, I want to, to maybe see if it's possible if they can recognize that there may be a moment, even while they're sitting with you, where they're not depressed, so that at least starts to loosen the identity to then see what, what really is um, depression. Okay, so there's that piece. If, if they are um, just unable to basically get out of bed, just a persistent, flat affect, if they have a hard time making eye contact, if they are absolutely 100% devoted to their view about themselves as being hopeless or limited, uh, and that, gets, that can be, form quite a rut, then sometimes what's needed is something to interrupt the, the thinking pattern. And sometimes that's a time where I might recommend that they get support of some other drug. But, you know, most of the studies on antidepressants, although there may be many people in here, they don't necessarily help more than talking. There's not very much, there's very little evidence to suggest they really help in the long run. More than just you showing up and loving them up. And See, being heard. I've read those. I, that's not been my observation, but ah. I, I, I have read that, especially lately. Yeah, there was a new, a, a, yeah, there was a big article that just came out. And I think it was in the New York Times. Was that? Last, last Sunday. Last Sunday, exactly. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. And it, it substantiated a little bit what I've also read through the years. But I also recommend that people yeah. go on antidepressants from time to time. You know, something that interrupts the, the, the rut that our, our um, feeling, body, conceptual mind can fall into. But ideally, you know, mindfulness practice does a lot of interrupting it deconstructs that identity of depressed. Um, and so you could have a lot, I think it's possible to be, I, I've seen a lot of people who are unwilling to, to go on antidepressants and who seem pretty depressed, but who, who through paying attention, they do interrupt it. So it depends on the temperament, the person. Anyway, it's such a big question. I, I did the, 
short, shorthand version. Okay, well, we now have a chance. We'll, we, I do want to share this whole section on uh, comparing mind. But I'll give you the sneak preview in a poem, and then we'll do some walking. And maybe you can even use this when you're walking. It's a poem from, I think it's Rumi. The punchline, live in the nowhere where you came from. So that's just be present. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. That's our story, identity. (laughs) Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. That's the comparing mind. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Uh, Let's see. I'll have to find it. Sorry. (laughs) You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Uh, The the small shop getting smaller all the time, the the measuring mind, measuring this, measuring that, checkmate, this, checkmate, that. And then it says, keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So the whole point is, as you can get from the poem, is the measuring mind is the house of self. It's always measuring above, below, or equal. And that's what I call the, the, the one who we imagine ourselves to be, the one that actually doesn't, um, that doesn't really exist in truth. That's the virtual me. And uh, that measurable one, uh, we don't necessarily close that shop, but we see it for what it is. That's what we do. So part of our practice and what we'll do during this next sitting is, is notice all our different versions of the comparing mind. And we'll also talk about the judging mind. So please, maybe just 10 minutes of refreshing your body. Uh, Do a little walk. Just get some fresh air and come right back. 10 minutes. Could you repeat the poem with uh, how you said? Just a second. Also, I'll be sitting up here talking to a few people if... um, if you need a little support one-on-one.
very much appreciate everyone staying with the day. Uh, it's, it's, uh, a, it's actually, I think, of, I think quite heroic to, to stay relatively still for this long <laughs> and to keep our attention in the present moment. It's very much against the stream of everything we're taught from the time we're born. So I appreciate you staying with it. That same poet Rumi says, inside this new love that you find here, uh, he says, die. <laughs> he says, uh, your way begins on the other side. Take an axe to this prison wall. Um, slide out the side and die. You're, you're in, you've covered with thick, thick clouds. Slide out in the side and die and be dead. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. But the, the real pith of the matter is, he says, your old life was an endless running from silence. Uh, the speechless full moon comes out now. So, we, so to actually stop, to die to the, into life is, is rare in this world. Our, most people's lives is an endless running from silence. So it's a big deal to stop. So I appreciate that you're here today. So in um, Barb, where's Barbara? Barbara, come back. She's still here, or is she? I can. I'll wait with this passage. So, just one last, one remaining thread from working with mental states—the ones, the hindrances that I talked about—and all the whole range of moods and emotions that we habitually cling to and identify with, as Ajahn Sumedho said. Uh, when we identify with emotions, we, we really think they're ours. They, we really think they're me, that they're mine. But in, in more communal cultures, more cultures that appreciate the sense of interbeing, of interdependence, uh, the view of emotions is much less personal. Example. This is the writing of Reggie Ray, but he refers to a teacher named Maladoma, who's, a, who's a, an African guy who's, um, who has carried a lot of his, his community's um, wisdom into his teaching in the West. His name is Maladoma. And so I'll read this passage so that perhaps you can have a, a wider view, maybe more loving view, about the whole range of your, your, the range of your own emotions. As we've seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely, largely within a conceptual world of their own making, attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into the continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. 
as noted, the more disembodied we are, and when, I, when you say that, don't take that as a judgment. It's kind of an innocent, innocent move out of care for ourselves, away from something that we didn't know how to be with. So everything we do, we do have done something out of love for ourselves. I'll give you a little example from my own practice. This may seem not the same as becoming disembodied, but during a three-month meditation retreat that I did back in the late 70s, I spent three months practicing in a room about seven feet by 12 feet long. And I had in that room a foam mat, a bunch of pillows that I had brought along, my, my zafu. And on the, on the, at the end of the room, because the room was so small it had no closet, there was a rack. And on that rack was a lot of clothes. What I thought in my mind was way too many clothes. And I realized that, and, and often I would look around the room and say, I've, I've got way too much stuff. I've brought all my accoutrement with me. So this was my, my little self-view, a little judging view that, I'm, that I've got too much stuff. And I'm too much caught up in stuff. And I would notice that when I would get very uncomfortable, many unpleasant moments, my mind would go to what I might purchase, not unlike unwise purchases. Or I would imagine having the different clothes in different colors. Or fixing the things that need to be fixed. So, so this became a little field for, for uh, exploration. You know, when, when your mind is getting quieter, you see, what you're, you see those little reactions that you have to things and the judgments. So I, it was a little bit, I was a little bit, I wasn't exactly seeing with a lot of precision this view about myself that I'm, that I'm a greed type, which, you know, that would be one of the ways of characterizing it. But it was, uh, it was a kind of vague sense. And I was a little irritated with, you know, all my stuff. So I'm sitting in this room for three months. And there's a parallel process that happens when you meditate for that long, is not only does the world get all broken up and deconstructed into moments, vibrations, pulses, moods, everything just arising and vanishing very quickly and the mind able to catch in between, kind of poke through the little folds of reality. But at the same time, you go through a psychological regression. You, you know, if you ever notice people after a long retreat, is their eyes are, have those giant light, they look like, we call it the Vipassana facelift. <laughs> where the eyes get really big and the, the complexion really, just so vulnerable, so open, just very innocent in a way. And that's really our natural state, is innocence. So in the middle of this retreat, I'm regressing. And the phenomena that's coming in my practice is, at times, I, I'm feeling as though I'm being assaulted by the, the flow of experience. And it's all so intense, and I'm like this little baby. You know, at the same time, there's stronger awareness and equanimity, an ability to kind of ride the waves. But meanwhile, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, equally, as well as awakening, I'm also regressing. And I'm feeling very young. And at some point, it's all too much for my system. And I look around, and everything I look at is, is both scary and painful. I look out the window, and just having sights and hearing sounds, everything's impinging on my consciousness, and it's scary. And so I, I knew at that moment 
And I know you've had this moment where I knew I needed to be held. I needed to be held. And I, I guarantee that everybody in the span of their life at some point needs to be held. I needed to be held, and there was nobody there to hold me. So what did I do? I rolled off my, zab, my zafu onto the other pillows that I had, wrapped the zafu and the other pillows around me, and I held myself. And at that moment that I held myself, I just started to wail. There's a little kid that's either being held or holding themselves. I just started to wail. And there was a kind of crack of the heart in that moment. And from that vulnerable place of holding myself, needing to be held, I looked around the room at all my stuff. And I realized, oh, I've been trying to hold myself. And with that realization that even my, even my quality that I was critical of, even that was attempt to make myself feel better, to give, to hold me. And there was a crack in the heart. And this, what we call self-compassion, just came flooding in. And believe it or not, it has never left me. And my radar for all everybody's strategies and all the things we do that look crazy and that cause suffering, I know that it's coming out of an attempt to find relief. And so ideally, you know, part of the motivation for doing this day is to begin to regard all the, all the edifices that you build to protect you, uh, not with derision and not with criticism, but with, with mercy and kindness. <coughs> All those strategies that you've used to put yourself together in an inherent an environment of inherent insecurity that comes with being born. We're born through no fault of our own. We get we age, we get sick, we get die not and die not according to our will or our wish. It happens. So any identity with the body not very safe. Our moods change incessantly. Our, the views of others about us change incessantly. <laughs> so there are so many, so many ways that we are vulnerable to the winds of circumstances and conditions outside of our control that any attempt to try to build an edifice of, of security in a self-view, I'm not saying you can't have that same kind of clarity and all those, the strength of mind and strength of compassion and heart as the Buddha and manifest as an individual with, with great clarity and, what, and just be yourself. But the, the views about ourselves and the strategy, they're really, they're a house of cards. They're easily shaken. And so rather than beat ourselves up for that and for all of our um, egoism and attempts to be special, which is what the primary activity of ego is, we should love it. Poor you. <laughs> You're trying so hard to be liked or special. Or, and maybe in that process, you might slowly, slowly stop defending the indefensible. Defending, when I say defending uh, this, these views of self, which cannot be, can't really be subst- can't really be solidified. So here's a reason I use that word, uh, defend. It's from a passage from a teacher named Jeff Foster. 
called humility as nothing to defend. I find truth in anything anyone ever says about me, so nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened, the worst being in the world, I can find it all. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this, what am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. So getting back to maladoma, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) into digressions today. He says, as we've seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within a conceptual world of their own making, attempt to handle experiences by fitting them into the continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. As noted, the more disembodied we are, the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes. In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are, not just from our emotions, but from a feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of personalism. Everything is about me, narcissism, and individualism. I am a free agent with no inherent ties or obligations to anyone or anything, found in modern societies. The personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied, individualistic, and personalistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a much larger, less individualistic context. For example, Maladoma Somme speaks of emotions within a much more transcendent frame of reference. Maladoma says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about just one person alone, but rather about the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. Now, when we see somebody who's histrionic in our own orbit, do we te- don't we usually teach, treat them as somebody who needs to be managed instead of something that's trying to teach the community something? Beyond this, emotion is considered one of the primary ways that the unseen or other world of the ancestors, the transcendent source of life, well-being, and wisdom transmits needed life-giving information 
to the human community. That's just the last thread about emotions. If you can actually see your emotions, it's not just, not just you and yours, or me and mine, but, but really a manifestation of, a, of a collective conditioning, collective condition. Not me, not self. Because the idea of self is that it exists independently, apart from everything else. And what we see more as we study our mind and body, that everything depends on conditions. But, uh, somebody passed on that, um, that's, I won't find it now, but where are you? I, I can't find your quote. Do you, could you say it out loud? The, Me? Yes, the oh, Martha Graham yes, quote. Yes, Martha Graham, and this morning when Howie was talking about us not having individual beginnings, I thought of it, and it is, she says, how does it all begin Perhaps it doesn't begin, it just continues life, generations, dancing. Yeah. And, and that's, how often do we think of ourselves as, as part of a continuum, as opposed to, I'm here apart from the flow of life, the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. That's where we usually land. And that landing in that self-view, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, is a distortion of perception. It's what's called delusion. So one of our primary delusions, primary distortions, one of those kinds of mental habits that, are, it's, that is innocently attempting to help us find some kind of relief, some place in the family of things, but in fact causes us a lot of torment, is the mental habit of comparing. The Buddha called it mana, or conceit, the conceit I am. And the conceit I am, the mana, is also known as pride, also known as the comparing mind. And there are three kinds of mana that the Buddha spoke of, ways that we construct a sense of identity, a virtual identity, an imaginary identity. And that is the, uh, what's called Mana, which is the equality view, where we're constantly comparing, make sure that we're equal to somebody else. We're that kind of measuring mind. And then there's atimana, which is called the superiority view, when we think of ourselves as above someone else. And then there is what's called amana, which is the inferiority view, where we think of ourselves as below somebody. Now, we never find above, below, or equal in real time. This is all imaginary except for maybe the measurement, I'm sitting higher than you. But there's no, but this, is, this whole view about ourselves as being co comparable, it's part of our personality story. It's not really an absolute fact. Yet our mind, when we try to, I, try to secure our identity through comparing, through elevating ourselves or finding some kind of reinforcement for being less than, we're left with in that insecure of having our identity tied to thoughts. And, and thoughts are just, they're empty, vaporous. There's really no there there. So where is higher than? Where is lower than? Where is equal to? These are just stories. 
And for Barbara, I waited to read this until you got back in the room. This is just a, one of my favorite examples of just an earthy example of the comparing mind. This is a, a longish reading from the teacher, um, Ed Brown, who's the author of the, all the Tassajara bread books and different cookbooks. Ed says, when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a car kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits well, for those of who don't know what Leave It to Beaver, it used to be a very popular um, television serial back in the 60s. Canned biscuits from Pillsbury, Leave It to Beaver. People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another. But to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I've been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheaty, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant. In fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize that your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted. How unfathomable. A thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As meditation students, we spent years trying to look, trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a Bisquick Zen student looked like. <laughs> Calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one who does those things, and if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. <laughs> Don't peek behind my cover, we say, and if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, the heck with it. I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring the, some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? 
So this comparing mind can go to uh, unbelievable ends. Uh, this need to be special, to stand out. Beautiful, simple example, hysterical example to me, from um, the year 2002. In June, after the British musical group The Planets introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, (laughs) representatives of the state of the composer John Cage who once wrote 4 minutes 33 seconds, which is 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off, (laughs) but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds of it thought had been pilfered, said Mike Batt of the Planets. That's the band. Mine is a much better silent piece. I'm able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. So this, uh, you can see, that's just a... So our practice offers us an amazing opportunity to step out of the torment of this impossibly, impossible to secure um, locating ourselves in a measurement of above, below, or equal to. This is that, that from that poem where he said, he says, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So closing that shop means just awakening to the comparing mind and seeing how our, how our mind is constructing an identity. And when we see the comparing mind and its torments, again, it's one of those things that it's all trying to make us feel better, but it doesn't work. And so we want to be kind to ourselves when you see how much of the time, how many mind moments you have comparing, because you will. And then the, the, one of the extensions of comparing is judging. Uh, Judging ourselves uh, mostly critically. Mostly with some kind of view that you should be different than the way you are. And what's possible in our practice is to wake up to notice the judging mind judging. Not necessarily identify with the judging mind. I am the I'm the one who knows who you should be, or believing the judging mind and becoming identified that way as I am somebody who's, who, um, who is worthy of being judged. Um, and believing whatever the judgment is that our mind says, you, you idiot, or whatever it is, and we, we cower in the face of that critical voice. Instead, in our practice, one of the ways that we love the house at Ego Bill is we, we see it. We see, oh, that's the judging mind judging. And there's actually nobody judging anybody. It's just judging mind judging. It comes unbidden, floats through our mind, and if it's recognized, it doesn't land anywhere. It doesn't become me and mine. So sometimes people are encouraged, you know, what I, what I was taught by my teachers, because I had a very fierce judging mind when I was uh, younger, 
And I can say from experience that it, it has quieted so dramatically that it's almost virtually non-existent now. That, 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 um, that inner critic that used to be very harsh. But uh, one of my teachers used to um, use as an instruction, say, and ask, I'm not sure if they asked me, but I watched them ask somebody else, you know, who, whose voice is that in your mind, that judging voice? And usually it's one parent, you know, at least, or the internalized version of that one parent. And, uh, and then, then the next question is, well, what's that parent's name? And the person would say Sylvia or George or whatever. And so then the, the instruction is, the next time you hear that voice, you say, let's say it's George, you say, thank you, George. Thank you for sharing, George. And then you get to see how impersonal it is, how it just comes. It's not me, not mine. Cannot be defined by this. Now, if it goes unnoticed, it builds the whole house of self. If it's noticed, it's just George. And then the next method, which uh, is universally used, which is uh, instead of believing the judgments, the worries, the fears, whatever it is, those, the frequent tormentors in our mind, we start counting them. And by the time you get to number 500 or 400, you start seeing how impersonal they are. How they're just judging mind, judging, judging mind, judging. And one of my friends, uh, one of my teacher's friends, was encouraged to, um, at the end of every judgment, he would add the words, and the sky is blue. <laughs> Again, to just show you that it's just judging mind judging. So you can use any one of those. So we don't really have a lot of time to sit right now, except to spend the last few minutes. Um, we can open to the judging mind and the comparing mind, but mostly I'd like us to spend this last moment sitting uh, regarding every aspect of what we call ourselves, what we tend to be identified with, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, to regard them all with, with kindness. And just to honor our incarnation, our unique individuality, by meeting it with kind attention, kindfulness. And if you, in the span of this sitting, you notice the hindrances, if you notice the comparing mind, the judging mind, or sensations that are hard to bear, moods, just meet them with kindness, mercy. And so settle in with a loving attention to the sensations of the sitting body, sensing the skin, of the body, the flesh, the muscles, the bones of this body. Sense the, the lungs, the breathing body. Each moment of attention like a 
a blessing offered to this body of loving-kindness. And whatever sense of ourselves or view of ourselves comes up to also regard that with kindness. What will often float into our mind, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a, I'm a person, I'm short, I'm tall, I'm light, I'm dark, I'm whatever it is as a way of identifying ourselves, we meet it with kindness. Our frustrations, we meet with kindness. Our restlessness. And we drop once again into the middle of this field of experience that wouldn't be possible without our individuality. Without this body and without this mind. We drop words that express that deepest longing that we share with all beings. And we wish that for ourselves. May I be happy and peaceful. And to the best of our ability right now, we, we try to feel that as we say it, not postpone it. These are unconditional qualities, so that we have to turn toward them. May I feel safe with myself for this moment. May I be safe with myself as much as possible. May I feel safe with others. May I be protected. I want to be protected from inner and outer harm. Wish that for myself. A universal desire to feel healthy and strong. But I also wish for myself that I can meet my limitations, my physical limitations, with grace. Dropping into this field of loving attention a wish to be well, have a sense of well-being. And to be at ease, to have my heart quiet, at ease. And I wish for myself acceptance of myself just as I am. All those parts where there is nothing to defend. Where it's all true. And I wish my heart to be filled with the impulse of kindness and mercy and joy and equanimity. And as I want 
to be happy, peaceful, safe, protected, healthy, and strong, as I want ease of being and wellness. May all beings, all those who've supported my practice today, made it possible for me to be here, all those beings near and afar, all beings everywhere, all creatures of the air, of the waters, of the land. May all beings know well-being and happiness and peace, safety. May all beings feel free of the bonds of distortions, misperceptions. May all beings love the many houses that the ego builds. May all beings be liberated. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, since we don't exactly exist independently, there truly is no other. And may all beings be touched by wisdom and love. just in time. Well, as I realized as we went along today, this is a, this could be a, a one-year program. <laughs> but uh, thanks for putting up with the, with the speed, uh, speed download today. And uh, I so appreciate you being here. And, and uh, I think all beings everywhere appreciate you being here since um, I think hopefully it'll be of some benefit, and I hope to see you along the Dharma trail, and thank you for your generosity. It, uh, it, uh, the next group th- thanks you, and it's really a, a kind of a, it doesn't happen without, without this um, flow of generosity, so thank you. And uh, if anyone would like to um, sit with me again, uh, I have an ongoing Tuesday evening group in San Francisco, it's in the Mission District, 15th and Julian. That's between Mission and Valencia at 15th. And it's always there whether I'm not. It's 30 years running. And uh, it's a kind of a fun feast, so come. Just It's really nice to practice with other people and be supported. And so right in the middle of busy San Francisco, you can find a little, hopefully a little refuge. So I'd love to see you there. And then uh, you can go to missiondharma.org and find uh, my teaching schedule or spiritrock.org. has the link to Mission Dharma. So hope to see you on the Dharma Trail. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Likewise. What's your name? Marta Weinstein. Hi, Marta. I've taken many residential retreats. Oh, great, great. So glad you're here. Jack Cornfield, Philip Moffat, Anna 
Douglas, uh, actually Mark Coleman. I'm going to see Mark Coleman. We're going to Mark Coleman uh, at Esalen when oh, he teaches his awake. And, uh, oh, nice, nice. So, When's yeah. Mark's thing at Esalen? Uh, October, October 10th or something.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.